Hi, welcome to this fresh teaching from Foundation Church Belfast. My name is David. I'm the pastor of Foundation Church and we're going to be looking together uh, part four in our series called Restoration, looking uh, at the book, the Old Testament book called Ezra. And today we're, we're in Ezra chapter four uh, and the, the text is available uh, by looking at the link that comes with the video or it might be up on, on, on the video screen just now. Um, now's your chance to just hit pause on the video and read Ezra chapter four so you know roughly uh, the story before we examine that in a bit more depth. But anyway, as we go through today, we're going to see uh, and look at this subject of opposition. And we're going to be thinking under the three headings. Number one, we're going to be uh, thinking about how the restoration community should expect opposition. Secondly, we'll see the restoration community can prepare for opposition. And number three, we'll see how the restoration community will overcome opposition. So expect it, prepare for it, but yet finally overcome it. And so it's an encouragement. So I hope you'll stick with, with me uh, as we go through these verses. But let's look at the first part. The restoration community uh, should expect opposition. That might not sound like good news. Uh, but stick with us. So a uh, brief recap we saw last week, uh, scenes of jubilation and praise and worship as the uh, altar uh, in, in the, uh, the grounds of the old temple in Jerusalem had been rebuilt and the foundations had been laid and worship had started, uh, even though it was exposed to the elements uh, the, the foundation had been laid and it was just the foundation and yet that was a, an occasion for great praise and celebration. So we left chapter 3 with a sense of, of joy. It was a real high moment in the story of restoration. And things have been going great until we come to chapter 4 and we see for the first time some opposition. The brakes get put on the project. Um, some opposition comes and that, that really is one of the themes that we see throughout the rest of the book of Ezra and the, the book after that in Nehemiah um, and other places in the, the Old Testament as well. But together it teaches us that the restoration community should expect opposition. It comes with the job. How does it look? Well, as we look through the text, we see three different ways that opposition uh, comes against the, the restoration community. Three forms. Uh, don't forget, by the way, this, this, this is just a list that we're looking at just now, but it seems to it's happened over a period of many years, uh, probably over a decade, um, of, of opposition in various forms, efforts of the enemies of God's people to try and stop them uh, from rebuilding the temple. They didn't want that to happen for various reasons. So this is a, a long-term, ongoing, a chronic opposition. How does it take place? Well, we see the first way the opposition comes in verses 1 through to 3. And it begins by telling us at the beginning of chapter 4 uh, that the uh, adversaries, that is the enemies of the people of Judah and Benjamin, heard the returning exiles were going to be building a temple to the Lord. And so they approached the leaders, uh, Zerubbabel and others, and said, let us help you. Let us build with you. At the end of the day, they said, we, we worship the same God as you, so it seems to be okay. Let's help you. We'll help you in the process of rebuilding. Now, it's clear to the readers, you and I, as we look at this, that the, these people who make this request, this claim, uh, are adversaries. They're enemies, as it so turns out. But at the time, that would not have been immediately clear. Um, it sounds nice. It sounds like a generous offer that these outsiders are making. We'll, we'll come and we'll work alongside you. And if you're hard at work in the trenches, 
if you're if you're literally uh, sweating uh, to to rebuild the temple, then the offer of extra help might sound like a great deal. And they go on and say, "We worship the same God as you." Um, you know, we, 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 we worship Yahweh. We want to see his kingdom come as well. So let's let's um, let's partner together. Um, we've been worshipping him from many centuries ago. Just as a little aside, who are these people? Who are these adversaries who claim to be worshipping Yahweh, the God of Israel? Because they're not Israel. They haven't come back from uh, from exile with the people of Judah and the people of Benjamin, the remaining tribes of Israel. Who are these people? Well, Let's not forget, even though the, uh, the people of Judah had been eventually exiled to Babylon about 50 or so years earlier, that doesn't mean to say that no one then lived in that area. It didn't just become a complete wasteland. No, no, no. What happened was that people from surrounding tribes, surrounding uh, people groups came in and took residence. They almost like assumed squatters' rights. Uh, and this lasted for decades and decades. So they, they came to see that part, these deserted uh, towns and and. and uh, you know, villages, they came to see them as their own territory. So, of course, it's not good news then to the people who sort of took up residence in the in the, in the promised land, so to speak, um, when they heard and saw Israel not only coming back from exile, but, but starting work on the temple. This was not good news for them. Anyway, uh, they, they offered help. And as we'll see in a few moments time, the leadership said no not not at all we don't need your help you're not you're not of us you're not part of us we don't want your help but you can see here the first way the opposition came to the restoration community is through infiltration uh they were hostile as it so turns out but they were hostile with a smile um their plan of course was to was to get in among the community to 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 gain trust uh, but to disrupt the work from within to, to distract uh, to perhaps build themselves a little power base, a little support structure, and then sway the entire community in their direction. That was most likely the plan they thought they would get away with. And as we'll see, that didn't work out. Their offer was not accepted. It was refused by Zerubbabel and the other leaders of the people. And so they had to resort to plan B. So the second form of opposition that we saw, and we see that in verses 4 and 5, it says the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. Discouraged them, made them afraid to build. The, the first op option didn't work, so they resorted to more overt tactics, discouragement. They couldn't weaken them from within, let's weaken them from outside. Let's break their spirits. And it took very many forms, no doubt, and it happened over uh, many years. So this is just a chronic, ongoing discouragement, a chipping away, a chipping away, a chipping away of faith, of vision, of, of encouragement, just trying all the time to break that down. And it would have taken many forms, most likely from verbal uh, abuse to belittling them, to slandering from the outside, perhaps even threatening violence, to damage to property, smear campaigns, you name it. It says they even resorted here to bribing the Persian uh, officials who oversaw that part of the, the Persian Empire. They started to bribe them uh, so as to frustrate the purposes of the people of Israel, just to slow the wheels down, just to you know grind up the bureaucracy so that they couldn't get permissions to do this, that and the other thing. If we can't get them from within, the enemy thought we can discourage them from outside. Uh, they would do anything to stop the work on the temple, to stop the people of Israel taking possession once again, chipping away. That's the second form of 
opposition was discouragement. The third form we then see through verses 7 through to 16. Now verses 7 through to 16, just so you know, uh, is largely a reproduction of a letter. It was a letter that was sent many, many years later, um, well into the rebuilding project. So no doubt by now the walls of the temple were starting to take shape and the, the doorways and the steps up to the temple, everything was starting to take shape. And, and as the project continued, the opposition ramped up as well. And so we have uh, the reproduction of a letter that was sent uh, by uh, a group of enemies, adversaries of, of Israel, uh, sent to the king of all the empires, so the king of Persia, to uh, uh, as he was called, Artaxerxes. He's the, the king at that time. Uh, when you read through verses 9 through 10, it lists all these people who put their signatory to this letter to the king of Persia. Sometimes we see, uh, you know, a letter, maybe in the Belfast Telegraph or, or some of the, you know, the, uh, the, the, the national newspapers um, or, or these, you know, so-called open letters, they're called. And, and, and sometimes they'll be written to government or to Boris Johnson, the, the, the prime minister of the United Kingdom, um, so forth. And, you know, a list of doctors who have concerns about COVID or a list of teachers who have concerns about education or a list of scientists who have concerns about this, that and the other. And, and, and what they do is they write this, this letter and then they, everybody writes their names at the bottom of it and, you know, their status and their position. And the, I suppose the thought is that the more names there are uh, and the more high, high office these people um, occupy, the more compelling, the more power the letter has. And so that's what we see in verses 9 10 through 10. We've got various leaders. We've got governors. We've got uh, various men, uh, leaders from Babylon, leaders from Susa, that is the Elamites, governors and officials. All these different people have added their signatory to this letter that gets sent to the Persian king. And what they're saying in, in summary is that, look, the, the, these people uh, of, of Israel, the, the, these returning exiles, when you, when you look, O king, in the history books, uh, you will see that they have a long history dating back many generations of, of rebellion, of revolt, of withholding taxes from the, the powerful kings that oversee them. So if you allow this work to continue, O great king, then you won't get your taxes, you won't get your honour, and you probably will lose, lose the land. You'll lose that part of your, your empire. You don't want that to happen, O king, do you? Search the archives and you'll see that we are true, that we are right. So the letter eventually... Uh, gets there. We've taken probably several weeks to arrive in the hands of the king. Uh, multiple eyes would have seen it, no doubt, before it reached the king's uh, vision. And yet he, he then replies and says, yes, I have taken your advice. I have looked through the, uh, the royal archives and I've found indeed what you're saying is true. These are trouble, these people. I've no idea what my predecessors were doing and allowing them back. They're trouble. You can order them to stop uh, their work down tools and so as that return letter was then received back by the adversaries of the people of of uh, israel uh, it says in verse 23 they went with haste to the jews at jerusalem just couldn't wait and it says they used force and power and made them cease their work then the work of the house of god that is in jerusalem stopped until the second year of darius the king many years later eventually they got their way Went from the high, the celebration of Ezra chapter 3 to the end of Ezra 4, down tools, discouragement, depression, no work, 
the enemy, it seems, had won. The restoration community, you see, should expect opposition. And of course, this idea of opposition to the people of God and the purposes of God is not something that we just see in the book of Ezra. It's something that, that, that we see right through uh, the Bible. And we see this through into the, the New Testament as well, into the New Testament church. Um, yeah, you will get opposition uh, in the church, says Jesus. In fact, when the kingdom of God advances and the further it advances and the, 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 the higher it advances, the more opposition will come. In fact, Jesus made this pretty clear during his teaching ministry. He said this, a couple of verses. He said in Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you, this is my followers, he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and they persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He goes on to say, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. John 15 verse 20. That's a great encouragement, isn't it? Or, or what about this letter written to one of the churches in uh, modern-day Turkey, in Asia Minor? Jesus says this he, uh, through, through the prophet uh, St. John. He says, Do not fear to the church what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. You're going to be tested, and for ten days you will have suffering. Be faithful unto death. The end. Jesus says to his church, You will have opposition. The restoration community of the Old Testament, the Old Testament people of Israel, had opposition. The restoration community of the New Testament, the local church, can and will and does have opposition. You will have opposition. Perhaps you uh, have experienced some kind of opposition. If you are a believer in Jesus and a member of the church, perhaps you have experienced some form of opposition yourself. If not, then you will do at some point. Jesus makes that pretty clear and Ezra shows that that's almost normal for the restoration community. We might see it in terms of infiltration, uh, where people who look plausible and sound plausible enter into the community and, and yet on retrospect, it looks like their efforts are there to try and disrupt and break up. Jesus calls those people wolves in sheep's clothing. They look like one of us, they smell like one of us, and yet inside they have motives to disrupt and break down, just like the enemies of Israel. Maybe that's the kind of opposition that you have seen or experienced. Maybe you have seen or experienced opposition such as discouragement, the second form that we see in this text. One pastor and writer called Andrew Davis wrote, I read this recently, he said, the greatest weapon that the enemy has against the advancing kingdom of God is discouragement. It is powerful because it works. Maybe you have personally received discouragement from a number of sources, maybe from family regarding your Christian faith. Maybe you've received discouragement from the social circles that you, you are in, friends, colleagues at work. Maybe you have been the subject of, of ridicule or even a smear campaign or slander against your, your character. Maybe you've even had worse than that. You've had threats or even intimidation because of your faith in Jesus Christ. But all this goes to show that the restoration community should expect opposition. It shouldn't come to us as a surprise. And in fact, if you have 
been a you've called yourself a Christian for many years and you've never received any opposition, then I would go as far as saying that there might be something not right about your faith in Jesus, because it seems to be clear from what Jesus says and what we read here that opposition should be expected when it comes to faith in Christ. In fact, I think it's fair to say that the more the kingdom of God advances, as we've said, the more strength and more depth it has when it advances, the more that the church rises up in strength and influence, consequently, the more opposition there will be from enemies, from outsiders, uh, in all different forms against the work of God. And we'll see why that is and where that comes from in our next point. So first of all, the restoration community should expect opposition. Well, the second thing that Ezra 4 teaches us is that the restoration community can prepare for opposition. We can prepare for it. Because we can expect opposition, therefore we can prepare for it when it comes. How do we do that? Well, we, we prepare for opposition by seeing it and considering it in the, the bigger picture as part of the, the wider story of what God is doing in the world. Uh, you see, Ezra 4 is just a snapshot. It's just a, a, a small part of the story of, the, uh, of, of God's restoration project through the people of Israel. And that itself is a smaller part of the wider project uh, that God started from way back at the beginning and will carry it through uh, to the, the time when Jesus comes again. Um, and, and so we need to see our opposition on the, the, the background of the great drama of God's redemptive, his saving, his restoring work. Um, then we can interpret and understand um, our own opposition and be equipped uh, to prepare for it. So, so what is that big picture? How can we get hope uh, in the time of, of opposition rather than be broken down by discouragement? How can we get strength when it seems like the enemy is ramping up its efforts to bring us down and to crush any work that we're doing in the name of Jesus for the kingdom? What is this big picture that we need to, to grasp and have firmly in place? Well, when we take a step back from Ezra and, and we, we see the big picture of the entire story of the Bible, uh, we see that God, who has always existed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he created the known world, the universe, uh, out of love. Uh, he created the, the expanse, the gigantic uh, universe. He created that uh, to be perfect and it is magnificent and uh, infinitely complex. And as part of his creation... Uh, according to Genesis 1 and 2, he created humankind, the pinnacle of his creative uh, intensity. He created humankind in his image to have fellowship with God, to have relationship with him like no other part of the created order. You and I and every other person were created to walk with God, to, to enjoy him. I love the little phrase in, in Genesis 3. It said that, uh, God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It suggests that God, the creator, uh, would be present among his people, strolling with them, walking with them in this, this wonderful garden of Eden that he uh, originally put the humankind, uh, Adam and Eve, into. But Genesis 3, the beginning of the Bible, tells us that Adam, the first man, believed Satan's lie. 
the serpent's lie about God. Did God really say that? Um, surely God is restricting you. Surely he is cramping your style. And so rather than believe the truth about God, Adam chose the lie. He believed the lie. He, he, he sinned where he should have thrown the snake out of the Garden of Eden. He should have ejected it. He should have crushed its head. Um, he should have protected his wife. He should have done all of that. He, he listened to the lies of Satan, of the enemy of God, and, and sinned. Fell out of God's uh, perfect uh, garden, if you like. And with him, all of humanity uh, fell. Fell from that place of, of, of uh, relationship, of intimacy, and sinned. But, as the Bible also shows, rather than destroying that which he created... Um, and starting from scratch, God, in his grace and his wisdom and his mercy, instead chooses the far more difficult path on all accounts and begins this great redemption, this great work of restoration. Uh, and we see the first proclamation of that in Genesis 3, 15, right at the, the first few chapters of the Bible. God declares, he says, I will put enmity, he's speaking to the serpent, which is you know, the manifestation of evil and of, of, of uh, Satan, you know, the great adversary, the great enemy. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, humankind, uh, descended from the woman, from Eve. I will put enmity uh, between your offspring and her offspring. He, that is the offspring of the woman, will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. And so right there we see God uh, putting this, uh, this announcement of the good news um, that one day there will be someone descended from Eve, from, from humanity, a human being, who will rise up and finally and fully and completely crush the head of the serpent and all of his offspring, if you like, all, all, all of evil and brokenness and darkness and sin and death someone some human being will rise up and crush that and destroy it and remove it uh, and and so doing restore uh, God's people once again and so the rest of the bible then can be understood as an unfolding of that drama a commentary on Genesis 3 verse 15. So uh, throughout all of scripture, we are always looking, always hoping, always thinking of the big picture, always wondering when is the serpent crusher going to appear? The one who will rise up and finally and fully and completely deal with evil and sin and darkness and death itself. Who's that going to be? And we find out it's, it's not Moses. And we find out it's not the kings of Israel. It's not the judges of Israel. Not, not, Leaders come, leaders go. But we eventually find one, and here's the gospel, we eventually find one when God sent his own son. He was born of a, a woman. He was human in every way, uh, like us. And he rose up and he crushed the head of the serpent once and for all through the cross. His name was, was Jesus. How did he do that? It says in Colossians 2 verse 15, He, that is Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities of the spiritual realm and put them to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross. 
according to the New Testament, the gospel of Jesus, is that he, through the cross, through his death and subsequent uh, resurrection, Jesus defeated sin and death and the devil at the cross. And so here's the good news for you and me. The Bible clearly lays out that when we trust Jesus, that is when we put our faith in him, what he said, what he did, and that that applies to us when we trust him to do the work that we cannot do on, on my behalf, on your behalf, then the Bible says we are united to Jesus. We are spiritually, truly and really united to Jesus. So much so that we share with him the victory that he won on the cross. Uh, Colossians 1 verse 13, brilliant verse says this. He, that is God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness, you know, the, the realm of the serpent, and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. God has done that. He's done that for you and you receive that through faith in Jesus. He has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness. You were stuck. You were in bondage. You were, you were a slave. And because of his grace and his love, and through the work of the Holy Spirit, he took you and transferred you into the kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ. And you receive that through faith in him. The, the, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of goodness, the kingdom of freedom. All sin is forgiven. All guilt is gone. That is, that is yours through faith in Jesus Christ. And not only that, you have victory over Satan and evil and sin and death through faith in Jesus Christ. That is yours. You share that with him. Isn't that awesome? But that explains why we have an enemy because you see the story is not yet finished. We are still in the now and the not yet. Christ has died, as they say, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. There is another part that we are still waiting for. Yes, Christ is really, truly risen. Yes, if we have received that salvation, that victory through faith in him, and yet it is yet to be fully worked out because Jesus hasn't yet come again to call time on this current existence and finally and fully bringing us the, the consummation of his saving work, fleshing it out completely. We're in that in-between phase. And so therefore, we, we still have an enemy. And that is why, long story short, that is why there is opposition towards the church, towards uh, God and his people. There is a great enemy out there, the serpent, you know, the, the, the evil one, the, 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 the devil and sin and death. Their demise is secured because Christ rose from the grave, right? But yet that has yet to be fully applied. You know, some, sometimes it's said that the worst thing than finding an alligator on your travels is finding a wounded alligator because a wounded alligator seems to fight with more ferocity um, than, than a, a regular one. I'm not sure if that's true. I've never tried it. wouldn't advise it. Disclaimer. Um, but the point is that a wounded alligator is angry, it is desperate, and it will try and destroy you with extra 
uh, venom, so to speak. So as we've already seen, we will have opposition. We can expect it. We should expect it. We've seen that already. How do we prepare for it, therefore? By seeing opposition from the enemy to God's people on the bigger picture of what Jesus has done through the cross. He has won victory. You shall uh, receive that and have already received that through faith in Jesus. And yet one day that will be over. The enemy will be finally and fully and completely removed from the picture. But until then, we will still be struggling with this in this mortal combat, if you like, uh, with the serpents. Be faithful, Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, until death, and I will give to you the victory crown. It is yours. Be faithful. And so that is our calling, right, as the church. We are called to remain faithful despite opposition. Keep going. Keep going for Christ. Keep close to Christ despite opposition, despite discouragement, despite internal infiltration, despite political power being levied against us. Remain faithful to Jesus. That is our calling. Can you see how the gospel interprets our opposition? Can you, can you see how the big picture helps us to place it? Otherwise, we will just focus on the opposition. We'll just see that. We'll be dragged under. We'll become discouraged and disheartened. We'll put our tools down. We'll stop working uh, in the kingdom of God for God. Unless we take a step back and, and see all of this. This is where, by the way, our brothers and sisters who are in other parts of the world, uh, non-Western countries, we might say, uh, who experience the reality of persecution uh, from their families, from the state that they live in. We can learn so much from them in terms of how they see great hope for the future and how they deal with suffering um, rather than focusing on that being the final story, focusing rather on the finished work of Christ. We have much to learn from them. We can find out uh, by following uh, uh, organizations such as Open Doors or Release International, many other good ones, St. Barnabas Trust, uh, can help us understand and get a grasp about what's going on in the global church as brothers and sisters and other parts of the world uh, are facing persecution. And we can pray for them. We must pray for them and encourage them uh, in many different means. But let's not be surprised. Um, as we come to a close of this section, let's not be surprised when opposition comes. And my challenge to you, if you are feeling discouraged, if you are sensing the opposition of the evil one in your life, for your faith and in your uh, restoration community, if we at Foundation Church are feeling that discouragement uh, or feeling opposition from, from some quarter or other, let's, let's see, will you see your opposition in the light of the finished work of Christ? Because when we take a step back, we can plan, we can expect it, and we can prepare. We can arm ourselves. So the restoration community can prepare for opposition. Thirdly and finally, I want to show you that the restoration community will overcome opposition. It will overcome opposition. We've seen that already in our second part of this talk through Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross and the certainty of his second coming, we know that we will have victory ultimately in Jesus and, and fully one day through him and with him and we'll get to reign with him. So the church will certainly overcome opposition one day. And you and I, if you, if you are uh, members of the body of Christ by faith in Jesus, that is the church, then 
then you and I will receive and enter into that victory. And that is a wonderful hope that we get to have, that seasons all forms of opposition and challenge in this life. It must do. But I want to finish by uh, recommending or giving three practical helps uh, that, that you and I can use, that I'm actually using and enjoying, um, that can give us strength and hope in the times of opposition. The first one is this. I want, I want to uh, talk about internalizing the big picture. We've spent some time already looking at this big picture, this grand narrative, but uh, understanding it and explaining it is one thing, but we need to take it, um, take it into ourselves. We need to internalize it. So number one, internalize the big picture. Um, we do that as the, the word of God uh, becomes not just information to us, but becomes food, uh, becomes food to us as we take, and you know, plenty of metaphors like this in the Bible itself, as we take it and we eat it and we chew it and we take it into ourselves and it provides spiritual sustenance. It gives us spiritual energy, spiritual power with which uh, we serve God, out of which we live for him. The word of God, the Holy Spirit takes the word of God deep into us and, and brings it to life. Rather like a seed going in and germinating and growing up and sprouting and then providing fruit and, and, and multiplying to others so that the, the, there are the seed going out all over the place. The word and the spirit, that's what they do. And they, they help, uh, sorry, they more than help, they, they, they ensure us internalizing that big picture. Here are some of the ways that we do that at Foundation Church. Um, let me just run through them. Uh, we do that by committing ourselves to reading this scripture together. Um, one of the ways we do that, one of the tools is we use the community Bible reading journal, cbrjournal.com. Uh, you can find it online, uh, read all about it. Um, it's a way that we read scripture together in small groups, uh, same passage together. The whole church reads the same passage together. Um, and we just dialogue about that. We pray through it. We dialogue about that in little uh, WhatsApp groups. That's one way that we can hold each other accountable. It gives a good, manageable uh, reading just to help take parts of this big picture into ourselves, chew it over, allow it to do the work that it's intended to do. Um, so, yeah, scripture, uh, when we gather together, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, a.k.a. Communion, a.k.a. Eucharist, uh, the bread and the wine. Uh, given as a gift to the church to remind, uh, to refresh, to feed our hearts by faith um, as we chew on the bread and the wine and as we receive that into ourselves. Just again to remind us of the finished work of Christ, his sure coming again. And uh, yeah, much we can say about that. But that's another way, another indicator, another way to feed and strengthen and internalize that big picture. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Eat that bread and wine. Uh, we worship God, of course, as we gather together as a church. And, and we said a bit, bit about this last week, how we do that and what that looks like. Singing songs that remind us of the big picture, remind us of Jesus. Uh, Bible teaching uh, that always tries to put everything in, in, in context with the big picture, talking about Jesus. We're gospel-centered at Foundation Church. That means everything is shaped around the saving message of Jesus and what he said and what he's, what he's done. And of course, we are a community on mission. That means we are a community. We're like a family. Uh, we, we, we do life together. Uh, we're trying to help encourage one another. There's, 
you know, that often heard you hear of uh, the one another's of the New Testament, all these letters that Paul and other Bible writers have, have written to the churches. And this phrase one another comes up quite frequently. Uh, love one another, serve one another, forgive one another, encourage one another, build one another up. You know, speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. These are the, the, the attributes of the community, the one another's. That's how we should be acting. This is what our community should look like. And so that's what we're trying to foster at Foundation Church. And again, if you're not a part uh, of a, a spiritual community of the church, then we would love you to come and, and join with us and, and come when we start public gatherings again, uh, hopefully not too long now. And uh we can, you can come and enter and join and taste what it's like to be in one of these uh, communities on mission, um, the restoration community. So we'd love you to join with us. So internalizing the big picture um, is, is the first way that we can push back against opposition. We can deal with it. Um, which of those do you feel that you really need to um, embrace, would you say? Which of those is really close to your heart? What is, what is God... Uh, compelling you to to receive afresh um, with increased zeal number one internalize the big picture number two putting on the armor of god this is the second way that we can deal with opposition putting on the armor of god what is the armor of god if you've never heard that term before you've probably uh no idea what i'm talking about but ephesians chapter six a letter in the new testament that paul wrote to the church in ephesus mentions the armor of god it's a it's a famous passage and, and what he says is to the church finally be strong in the lord he says put on the whole armor of god because he says our struggle is not against flesh and blood it's not against ultimately human beings and human systems and people although that's often the face of it but he says our, our struggle is not ultimately against them but against the rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers that are behind this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil that's who we are up against O church and therefore he says take on take up the armor of god put it on this is often a phrase that is spoken about that you might see wall hangings made out of but this is something i've been taking literally um and and, and seriously over the last few weeks because discouragement is something that we're all going to face is something that i face as a a leader as a church planter um, just as a christian in general um, it's something that as we've seen already is a major uh, weapon of the evil one to try and bring down the church discouragement so let's let's push back put on the armor of god and so i have found it really helpful and encouraging every day to pray through the armor of god uh, ephesians 6 uh, look it up might be uh, coming up on a link in, in your video um, take up the whole arm of God so you might be able to withstand that evil day he says uh, you know fastening on the belt of truth the breastplate of righteousness the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace the shield of faith by which you can extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one the helmet of salvation so what do i do i just say lord thank you for giving me the armor of god thank you for giving me that in your spirit i i receive the helmet of salvation protect my mind protect my thoughts uh, with with thoughts of your saving work in jesus uh, help me hold up the the shield of faith strengthen my faith strengthen my arm that i might not become weak and let the 
let the guard down and let myself become susceptible. Put the breastplate of righteousness over me, Lord, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus um, and so forth. And so I pray like that every day, just recalling and uh, taking that personally. And again, it's just a way of receiving the work of the Holy Spirit, putting on the armor of God so that we might be equipped. Finally, it says at all times, pray in the spirit, uh, use the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It takes us back to the first step, isn't it? Um, bringing the word of God, bringing the big picture in. Take up the sword of the spirit, the word of God. So try that. Number two, putting on the armor of God. And third and final um, encouragement about how we deal with opposition. Thirdly, remember our calling. We are a community on mission. We're a community going somewhere we're on a mission and that doesn't stop just because the opposition comes jesus said go and make disciples he didn't say that with any qualification with an asterisk see terms and conditions doesn't apply if you're under opposition he said go and make disciples that is the calling of the church go and make disciples teach them to obey all i have commanded you to do that does not stop he says until i come again opposition as hard and difficult and as demeaning as it may be, should not stop the progress of the gospel to go out and make uh, disciples by that gospel uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Do not stop. Call for help. I am here. I, I am with you always, he says, to the end of the age. He is that by the presence and power of his Holy Spirit poured out upon the church on the day of Pentecost. Yes, we have help in Jesus, absolutely. And we are called to pray and to receive that strength and that help. But do not stop the mission that we are on. That is exactly what the enemy wants you to do. He wants you to down tools and start looking down. He wants to destroy your faith. He wants to uh, zap your vision like a balloon that's just had a pin stuck in it. Go and make disciples, says Jesus. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Nestle in, friends. Nestle in to the community on mission. We are here for you. We are here for one another. If I'm down, I know I've got people who will lift me up, who will encourage me in Christ. If you are down, if you are discouraged, if you are feeling oppressed, then you have brothers and sisters in Christ who will lift you up. Lean in to the community on mission. That is one of the reasons why we do life together. So we may lift each other up, get back on mission for Jesus. You know, power is granted. Victory is secure. The church will prevail through Jesus Christ. Let me finish by giving a fairly famous quote from the last few pages of the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. It gives us a, a bit of a picture of, uh, in Lewis's mind anyway, of the final days. Um, it says this, The light ahead was growing stronger. Lucy, one of the main characters, saw great series of many coloured cliffs led up in front of them like a giant staircase. And then she forgot everything else because Aslan himself was coming, leaping down from cliff to cliff like a living cataract of power and beauty. Aslan turned to them and said, You do not look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, We're afraid of being sent away, Aslan. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leapt and a wild hope rose within them. There was a railway accident 
said Aslan softly, your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. As he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Friends, through Christ and his victory and his finished work, we have hope upon hope upon hope that this life is just the cover and the title page. See you soon.